0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redemption Church. Thank you guys for being here uh, this morning. Um, As some of you guys know, Ben Ritchie is on sabbatical this summer. And uh, so over the course of the summer, uh, we were talking about how uh, do we um, or what do we do on Sunday mornings with Ben out? Ben and I typically split preaching duties. And so one of the things that we thought about on Sunday mornings over the course of this summer is to ask some of our members uh, to come and share with us on a Sunday morning, um, so throughout the throughout the New Testament, you constantly see god's people proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming god 's word. It's not just something that uh, professional clergy do, right? And so, as we thought about it, uh, doing this at redemption over the summer, uh, we've asked a couple of different people over the next couple of months to come and share with us on a Sunday morning. Um, and so, as our members are coming, during this time to, to preach and to proclaim God's word, I want us to understand that um, they're not coming to function as an elder or to fulfill the role of an elder, but they're simply responding to a request that the elder board has, has said, hey, why don't you guys come and we want to hear from you and uh, hear what your interaction with God's word is like as we move through this book of First John. Um, And so I want you guys to know that some of the members who are coming this summer have spent a tremendous amount of time preparing. Um, They're not necessarily professional preachers, uh, but they have spent a lot of time preparing. They've submitted their sermons and their work to the elder board, uh, sometimes months in advance. Um, And so I'd ask that you guys be uh, tremendously gracious as we sort of hear what God has for us, what the Holy Spirit has for us as some of our members come and speak. So this morning, uh, Kate Minix is actually going to come and share with us this morning. Um, Kate has been a part of Redemption for a long time, has volunteered in a lot of different ways at Redemption, has been super involved in her missional community. Um, so, uh, Kate, thank you, and uh, we look forward to it. All right.
1: Good morning. Okay, so as Reggie said, we're just going to be continuing through the book of 1 John as we've been studying. Um, so if you've got a Bible and want to turn w- with me to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7, um, and we're going to get going and start there. Um, so it starts Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in Him. And in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes When we read this passage, we first recognize kind of the contrast between light and darkness. And in some ways, this is a pretty easy thing for us to understand because light and darkness are probably the two most universal symbols in the world, Um, that across cultures and time periods and places, light is what is used to represent things that are good and true and darkness, on the other hand, is used to represent things that are evil or in some ways mysterious. And so here we've got that light and darkness contrast once again. And this um, this kind of Reveling in light, this idea that light is divine, goes back to the earliest civilizations that we know about on the planet. Um, So, just this week, a couple of days ago, thousands of people were gathered at Stonehenge for the summer solstice. Um, And if you guys know about Stonehenge, I'm sure you can imagine it. It's those like giant stone pillars arranged in circles. And um, the way that they've got it set up, they it's exactly aligned with the point on the horizon where the sun rises on the longest day of the year, on the solstice. And so because of that alignment, we have deduced, we have to understand that, um, that these people were calculating daylight in some way. They were measuring um, when, the, when the calendar, when the rotation of the earth, which they didn't know about, but just when the light went from getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more each day, to the solstice. And then after that point, it got... Smaller and smaller and smaller each day. So there are these people who, in some ways, were obsessed with light. Um, and if you want to go down a YouTube rabbit hole, uh, like I did, uh, go ahead and like look up the National Geographic documentaries and what the Discovery Channel is putting out about Stonehenge these days. Um, it's not just like where did these big stones come from? That's part of it, um, but they've been able to like find where people's paths were, which ways they walked in, kind of what kind of people were there, if these were people who were related or of a certain class. They've even analyzed like down to the pig bones that were used as sacrifice, what age these pigs would have been. Um, And so they've been able to paint this picture of people who were engaged in a ritual, who gathered together and stared at the horizon and waited for the light. Um, And this wasn't just at Stonehenge. There's like a number of places around the world. Um, Another place is in Ireland. It's called Newgrange. And it's a giant tomb. It kind of looks like a bunker. And it's got one window in it. And that window is also perfectly aligned with the summer solstice sunrise. And then there's um, a wall at Jericho. It's not the one from the Bible. This is actually an older wall that they've dated back like 10,000 years. And the way that it's been built lines up also with the solstice lines. So it's clear that people just cared about light, that before they knew anything, um, that we don't have any documentation about them, but we know that they were measuring light. And I think for us... In some ways, that's not surprising because it's just so pervasive, this idea that God is light. We see it um, not just in our own traditions all the time that, that we see God referred to as light in the Bible, um, but also in kind of new age spiritual traditions. When people stay, say namaste in yoga, that means like the light in me recognizes the light in you. The divine in me recognizes the divine in you. So there's this notion that there's light deep down inside us. And the author um, here in First John, he would have been familiar with something similar to that. Um, we've been talking about how this book might have been angled towards or written kind of in response to Gnostic spirituality, which also has a sense of light to it. Like maybe there is some special light in me that needs to be uncovered, um, that, that my body is just a trapping. But if I knew a secret, then the light in me would really be the good thing um, behind it. Um, But uh, both of those things, and and even the little that people knew about light thousands and thousands of years ago, are not uh, the same truth that we get offered here, um, that Christ brings us as light. So I want to talk through three points of this passage. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about why it was intended as good news, why it seems like good news, why this was written as an affirmation um, to these people in the first place, believed to be um, the church at Ephesus. I also want to talk about how this passage might be scary or intimidating or seem like maybe bad news for some of us as believers. And then lastly, I want to talk about how it brings up another aspect of our faith that I think is really crucial and actually ends up being better news than we could have imagined. And it's just one of those good things that we get to cling to. Um, So that's where we're going. Um, I'm going to go back into the passage where at the beginning, John says... I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So he's going soft here. He's basically telling them, you know what I'm talking about. This is coming as familiar to you. Um, He's bringing up things that, that come up in 1 John and also in the Gospel of John. The things like God is light and God commands us to love and our commandments are one way of how we gauge kind of who belongs to God and who is part of his family. So all of that is familiar to us a little bit, I think, if you've read through these books, and is also familiar to the people who he's writing to. Um, And they would have known the notion of God as light, even outside of uh, the Gnostics that were around them. Obviously, this comes up in Jewish tradition that God's glory and his promises are wrapped up in light, especially when we look at the prophets and also in the Psalms. So one example would be in Isaiah. Um, This is in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20. Um, It reads, the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light by night, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So when John talks about an old commandment and a new commandment, he's telling them this old commandment is the commandment that, or the teaching that we know, that God is light and that God commands us to love. But the new commandment um, is that in Christ, the light of God is in us. And that is meant to come as a big point of affirmation and assurance to these people, um, because as we'll talk about later, or you might see later um, in this chapter, they've undergone kind of a split or a division in their community. Um, In my Bible, it has a very ominous title called Warning Concerning Antichrist, uh, which isn't exactly, sounds scarier than it is. It really is. The Antichrists are just the people who used to be in fellowship with them and are no longer because of a theological split. Um, And I don't know if any of you guys have undergone um, a church split or a church division or if you've just known people who have left the faith for some reason. Um, But a lot of times um, that can be hard on both sides, and it can be hard on the people who are left behind, because they're left wondering, did I take a stand for the right thing here? Do I really believe um, as much as I said I did uh, the position that I ended up? And John's trying to give these Christians um, in this passage that he's writing to their confidence back, and he's trying to say to them, you know the gospel. You've always known the gospel. And through the gospel, I see Christ at work in you. Um, and he uses these strong contrasts of light and darkness, of love and hate, of inside and outside, who belongs, who doesn't belong, um, to affirm them. So in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And this idea that um, our love is a measure of how we... um, is the measure of whether we fit in with God, of whether we truly understand and get his commandments, is not just something that comes up here. We also see it in 1 John 2, 3. And by this, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed on a death to life because we love the brothers. Who does, whoever does not abides in death. And so some of us read these things, this contrast of, oh, who's in the light? Who's in the darkness? And maybe we think to ourselves, okay, I know what he's talking about. I know some Christians who say they're in the light, but are really in the darkness. Um, Maybe there's a person who comes to mind for you. Maybe it's a person you know personally. Maybe it's a leader who you think, hey, they're claiming one thing, and they're actually doing another. Um, But some of us read this passage, and we think, "Uh uh-oh, am I the one who is still in the darkness? Um, And friends, I am in that latter category. Whenever I read about... Um, fulfilling God's commands, I think, I don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know that I'm quite there. And especially when it comes to loving one another, to loving the brothers, this is probably the most straightforward commandment that God gives us in all of scripture. It's all over. And yet, I think if we were honest, it's also one of the most intimidating. Because wherever we would want an exception to the rule, whenever we would want to say, Oh, but not in this case. God, like, preemptively writes it in. Oh, no, in that case, too. In that case, too, you are supposed to love people. So in places um, where, where he wants us to love our enemies, we know that one, he wants us to love and expect nothing in return. He wants us to love those who persecute us. He wants us to forgive people who wrong us. And he wants, when we see people we don't care about or we don't like fail or stumble, He doesn't want us to feel good about that. He actually wants us to see them blessed. And if I'm honest, um, I have trouble feeling this way about people I actually care about, about my friends and family, uh, much less feeling this way all the time about people... Um, who I find really unloving themselves or unlovable, people who I think are wrong, people who frustrate me. Um, Maybe there are people like that, again, for you. Maybe you have political or ideological enemies that you think, oh gosh, I do not want to see them blessed. I do not want to see them thriving and flourishing in this way that we see in scripture. Um, So there's a writer and advice columnist uh, named Nicole Cliff, and uh, she actually used to be an atheist and came to faith Uh, in Christ a few years ago through reading an article in the magazine I write for, Christianity Today. Um, And so she had lived this life very publicly as an atheist, very happy uh, and content atheist, was not looking uh, for for anything, um, but happened to come to faith and know Jesus. And as she was kind of recalibrating her life, what it meant now that she actually did believe in the God of the Bible, one of the things that she observed was it's very inconvenient to think that everyone you interact with is a beloved child of God. She found herself on Twitter. Um, she found herself on public transportation um, with her family, you know, having that instinct to be frustrated and to be angry. Um, but as soon as she did, there was a second thought that came that was like, oh, wait, I don't get to do that anymore. Now I believe that God created that person. Now I believe that God loves that person, that that person is made in his image and somehow reflects him back to me. And I don't get to just be angry. Um, And hearing her talk about that was kind of startling for me because I think sometimes I've stopped having that second thought. I let myself get angry and make snap judgments, um, put myself first and be attention-seeking. I let myself kind of go down that I, I deserve to have it my way, um, and, and that attitude hasn't changed. Instead, I think as I recognize more and more of my sin as a Christian, I am tempted to become resigned to it, to be like, this is just the way it is. I've changed a little bit. I do believe, but I don't know that I'm going to hit that level of being perfect like the Lord your God is perfect. Um, it just seems aspirational, and it seems like wishful thinking. And I think some of that is human nature. It's human nature to want to do as little as possible, even when we're in the face of a task that's really big. Um, I had read, right before I started, my first Whole30. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Whole30. It's like a 30-day diet program, eating program. Um, Just imagine a food that you love, and you probably can't eat that one on Whole30. Um, You can't have grains or sugar or soy or dairy. Uh, for thirty days, strict no no cheats, no exceptions, nothing, um, so I had read before I was doing this that people who um, psychologists found people who proclaim or tell other people about their goals or their diets actually are more likely to not complete them. And so I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm doing this. My husband was overseas. And when people asked, I would just say, oh, no, thank you. I'm not eating that or I'm not hungry. And sure enough, I went the 30 days. Um, Because basically what happens is as soon as we say something, we get a hit of dopamine As if, like, oh, good for you. We get a little bit of a payoff psychologically just from intending to do something good. Hey, I'm gonna do this. I have this New Year's resolution. And maybe people literally say good for you, and if not, you just feel accomplished doing it. And so you're less motivated to go for that big payoff at the end of whatever that goal is. Um, And so the moral of this story is actually that I am more disciplined to. Do a diet plan than I am to care about my walk with Christ. I don't wait for that big payoff. I think, oh, I'll pray about like being more loving or reading Scripture more or going deeper in discipleship, uh, and that's kind of good enough. At least I'm trying. Like there are people out there who aren't even trying, um, and so I think that's that's fine. Um, but it's one, it's not fine, and two, it it totally misses the mark completely about the mindset that we're supposed to have, that God tells us, Um, because it tells me that I am still believing that my transformation is in my own hands and is up to me and my will and my might. So here's the part where 1 John 2 offers that even better news for those of us who struggle to love other people and who are scared that we're still in the darkness. Um, The lines uh, that John has about kind of who's in and who's out, that lightness and darkness, come after he writes that in us, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So this means that in us, the light of Christ is already shining. This is really important. God is not asking the Christians here, hey, you need to try harder or be better Christians or better reflect the light of God. He's not saying that at all. He is saying, hey, The light of Christ is in you. It's shining already. I see it. It is at work. And you can just rest in that. You don't have to be pushing for that. Um, And that's the gospel we believe. That's the power of it. Um, So when we think that um, we can only change so much or that perfectionism is out of our grasp, we forget that our trajectory is up to God. Um, So I want to think back to that notion of God as light. Um, God chose light as a metaphor for himself. Um, And I feel like God's probably the best person uh, to choose a metaphor in that um, he is the word and that he created everything. So he can kind of pick the exact thing that he wants to say that he is or that he is like. Um, And a few weeks ago, no shade to Reggie, but in a sermon, Reggie used the metaphor of something uh, unexpected or incongruous being like peanut butter and chili, um, and that was a bit of a stretch uh, because not all of us maybe know that uh, or experience that and you're like okay what is exactly does that mean but when God says here something is like light God knows what light is more than we ever will um, and he chose that and um, we know a lot more about light than the people did um, than the people did back at Stonehenge but we still actually don't like fully understand it it's It's a paradox. It behaves both like a wave and a particle, and it moves super fast. We know that, the speed of light. Um, So they've measured, uh, the people who calculate this, scientists, astronomers, I don't know, uh, physics, physicists, uh, can tell that a particle of light from the sun, it takes like eight or nine minutes to travel 93 million miles to get from the surface of the sun to like shining through that window. Um, And if we were somewhere else, say we were like uh, in the woods, in the dark, in a clear night, in perfect conditions, and maybe we could see um, the next galaxy over, kind of the farthest that the human eye can see. This is the Andromeda galaxy. That is so much further away that a particle of light would take 2.5 million years to travel 15 quintillion miles to reach us. And here's the thing. For that particle, it happens in an instant. It's nothing. It's nothing. The particle is not changed by it. It doesn't know that any time has passed. It is timeless and massless and limitless. It's, it's not constrained by the rest of the things that we know about the universe. And this was something that philosopher Chad Meeks had written about, that, that light does not comply with the poles and terms of the universe. And that's something to keep in mind when we think about the light of God in us. It is not constrained by any of our limitations here. It cannot be anything but light. Um, Augustine, the church father, he taught that the sanctity of Christ cannot be corrupted by unworthy ministers, that's us, um, any more than the light of the sun is corrupted by shining through a sewer. So it just has to be light. Um, and this, this dynamic of what do we do about God being so holy Um, and and somehow working through us when we are not, um, has been a question that the church has been dealing with forever. Um, Augustine, he he wrote about this because people kept having questions in the early church about how can we baptize people or how can we offer communion when we're a bunch of sinners here? How can we be instruments of God's grace if we ourselves are so broken? And so he came up with this concept called ex opere operato, which means the work worked, that means that Christ has already accomplished the work that is symbolized in the sacraments. So there's nothing that we as humans can do to mess it up. Um, and I think God was really gracious to me in giving me this message or this passage uh, to preach in a sermon um, because essentially I've been told already that I can't mess it up. Uh, he's doing it. Uh, and so I have to believe what I'm saying here. And it, it was a lot of anxiety off just to know that ex opere ex operato, you know, the, the work worked. And so. God is not limited by anything that I can or cannot do, and if He is in me, He cannot be anything but Himself, and I cannot be anything but changed by Him. Um, so, Amanda Bible Williams, who yes, her middle name is Bible, and she runs a site called She Reads Truth. So, she is a Bible commentator. Imagine that. Um, she wrote about this uh, this verse in chapter or in John one, and she said, "This battle is not a matter of mustering; it is a matter of trusting." The true light does not need me to flip a switch. He is already shining. My part is to stay close to him, to walk with him, to heed John's warning not to sin or flirt with darkness, not for lack of grace, but out of a longing uh, for the light of Christ to shine through. And I think all of us probably have like favorite Bible verses or favorite hymns that talk about God as light. I always liked that passage in Ephesians that says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. Um, But I realized I always thought it said you once were in darkness. But it actually says you once were darkness. And that means that God doesn't just change our circumstances or our surroundings. That God changes our very nature. And we can't overlook the power of that. That means that Christ isn't just the one who saves us in the end. He's not just responsible for our ultimate justification, um, but he's also the one changing us right now. He's fully responsible for what we call our sanctification. These things go hand in hand. Um, So we read verses in the Bible that say things like, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And what that means is even if we don't feel Christian enough, or if we feel distant from God, um, that those feelings are actually no measure of our standing with the Lord, and neither are our failures, thank God. Um, it means that when we are crucified with Christ, we take on his righteousness. Um, it doesn't feel like it should work that way. It feels like we should at least do something, um, but that's the way it is in the gospel, and so by our faith, we just have to accept it. Um, and this is not just a theological concept that we get to ascribe to. It, if we believe this, it actually should be something that makes us exhale, that, that takes the pressure off. We are freer to enjoy God and enjoy our lives um, just knowing that he is at work in us Plus, it's only when we know our right place um, in Christ that we are able to be in right relationship with one another, that we are freed up to love and care for um, the people around us and our enemies and everyone in our communities. Um, So that sense of freedom is also just a really powerful witness. It's why John tells us there is no cause for stumbling when we walk in the light. Um, So we can overcome our own hang-ups and our selfish habits Uh, no matter where we are in our faith, at the end of this passage um, in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, he's addressing, he calls them fathers and young men, but really it means like veterans in the faith and newcomers in the faith. And in both cases, he points out where he sees Christ at work in them. So at the very end, he says, I write to you young men, so that's the newcomers, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And he would not be saying you have overcome the evil one if it wasn't for Christ in them who did the overcoming. Um, So the daily victories that we experience, the things that we overcome as we are sanctified, as we desire to follow his commandments, um, and in Christ as we're empowered to uh, overcome and resist sin, those are glimpses of a future that we are promised. A future um, where we one day will not be able to sin, um, where we will be Uh, not like the people at Stonehenge gazing at the horizon, or not like astronomers glimpsing for light at the edges of the universe, but we will be surrounded by light, um, just like it was proclaimed in Isaiah, just like we read about in Revelation, where there will be a bright city with no need for sun, only the glory of our God. Um, But until then, the light of God is in us. We are not alone. Um, And I think I think it's easier for us to accept that future, um, that, that God has saved us for the one day, than to realize that God is doing that work in us right now. Um, but if we believe that Christ is responsible for our justification, um, we also have to believe that he is responsible for our sanctification. And I think once we believe that, we see God as bigger than before, and we see our own potential as greater than before, not because of our light or anything in us, but because of Christ's work already um, and the fact that he is in us. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Thank you. Um, Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this truth uh, that squashes self-doubt, that says we cannot change, or that we can only change so much, or that we can only change in certain areas of our lives, I pray for anyone in this room who has been holding on to areas of addiction or bad habits or stubbornness or sin. I pray that the light would shine in those dark places, God. Um, I pray for your sanctifying power. Um, And I pray that as we believe this, uh, this truth that you've given us so generously and graciously over and over in your word, Um, that we feel the freedom that you want us to feel, the freedom that that we are promised in you. Um, I pray that it makes us a better community, um, that it brings joy to our fellowship with one another, uh, and that it helps us as we witness to this community downtown, um, and as we await your kingdom come and build a kingdom uh, here on earth uh, that reflects what you have promised.
0: In your name, amen.